it's clear that the Federal Reserve is increasing bank reserves at a very rapid rate. Since Lehman, bank reserves have gone from something like $100 billion to uh, eyeballing a chart, uh, $470 billion or thereabouts. And the federal funds rate is trading persistently below the Federal Reserve's announced uh, now 1% target for the funds rate. So maybe he's going to enlighten us, and if not on that topic, I'm sure on a number of other topics. The speaker biography for Don is in your packet. I'm not going to read that. You can read faster than I can talk, and I would rather hear Don. Don, welcome, and great to have you here. not going to address the subject that Bill was talking about, but to let you know, I never go anywhere these days without my H41 that has uh, <laughs> the Fed's balance sheet, because I can't remember from week to week. Uh, I have but, mine right here. <laughs> okay. Um, so I do want to uh, address uh, issues related to lessons from the subprime uh, crisis, uh, but not exactly that one, maybe for, for the Q&As or the coffee breaks. As you know, uh, we are in the midst of a global financial crisis that is now weighing heavily on economies around the world. Although the outlook remains extremely uncertain, both the fragility of the financial system, weakness and real activity seem likely to persist for a while. To promote maximum sustainable growth and price stability, the Federal Reserve has responded to this crisis by easing monetary policy markedly, and we have greatly expanded our liquidity facilities to keep credit flowing when private lenders have become reluctant or unable to do so. Other central banks have also cut policy rates significantly and expanded their lending. In addition, the federal government and governments around the world have taken extraordinary actions to strengthen financial systems, to preserve the ability of households and businesses to borrow and spend. The current situation is so severe that it calls for a careful review of how such a crisis evolved and how we can prevent a similar situation from happening again. And I think this conference is a welcome step in that review as it asks about the lessons we have learned, particularly for monetary policy from the collapse of subprime lending, the preceding house price bubble, developments that contributed very importantly to the present financial crisis. This morning, I'd like to reflect on some of what I, in my role as monetary policymaker, have learned from recent developments in the housing sector and more broadly in financial markets as a whole. In doing so, I will revisit the remarks I made in 2006 in Frankfurt at a festschrift for Otmar Issing, there, I argued that a central bank facing a possible asset bubble would have to surmount some very high hurdles before it would be justified in tightening policy beyond what the outlook for inflation and output would require after taking into account past and projected asset price developments. In the aftermath of the collapse of the housing market, in the midst of the ensuing financial and economic turmoil, does that conclusion still hold? More time and study will be needed before we can be confident about the lessons of, these, of the current crisis. To foreshadow the remainder of my remarks, based on what we know today, I still have some serious questions about whether trying to use monetary policy to check speculative activity on a regular, systematic basis would yield benefits, that it would outweigh its costs. I hasten to add that it is evident from the current crisis that much has to change on the regulatory front. Governments around the world face the challenge of revamping the regulatory structure governing financial markets. And changes in this area, I believe, will be the most necessary and effective at reducing the odds on another severe crisis. Today, however, I will focus on some of the lessons of the current crisis for monetary policy, per se. In my 2006 speech, I discussed two different strategies for monetary policy to deal with a possible asset price bubble, the conventional strategy and extra action. 
The central bank, following the conventional strategy, does not attempt to use monetary policy to influence the speculative component of asset prices on the assumption that it has little ability to do so and any attempt will only result in suboptimal economic performance in the medium run. Instead, the central bank responds to asset price movements, whether driven by fundamentals or not, only to the degree that those movements have implications for output and inflation. This conventional strategy conforms to the Federal Reserve's dual mandate under the law, and it has been our policy strategy. It has also been consistent with the practices of most inflation-targeting central banks. However, some observers have argued for a more activist policy than this one. Specifically, they have urged central banks, upon perceiving the development of an asset bubble, to take extra action by tightening policy beyond what the conventional strategy would suggest, with the hope of limiting the size of the bubble and thus the fallout from its deflation. Such a strategy, if successful, could deliver substantial benefits, and a number of central bankers have talked about the need to consider a policy of extra action, and some have uh, perhaps even implemented such a strategy. However, taking extra action would also entail some costs, such as creating for a time higher unemployment, lower inflation than would otherwise be desired. In assessing these two alternatives for monetary policy in the 2006 speech, I concluded that a strategy of extra action might be justified if three tough conditions were met. First, policymakers must be able to identify bubbles in a timely fashion with reasonable confidence. Second, a somewhat tighter monetary policy must have a high probability that it will help to check at least some of the speculative activity. And third, the expected improvement in future economic performance that would result from the curtailment of the bubble must be sufficiently great. Of course, we live in an uncertain world, and accordingly, policymakers should always be open to the possibility that these conditions might be satisfied and extra action would be appropriate. But my thought at the time was that in practice, the likelihood of ever meeting these three conditions seemed remote. In the aftermath of the bursting of the housing bubble, however, the severity of the fallout might seem to call this judgment into question. So let's re-examine each of the three conditions and see what the current crisis has taught us so far. Let me start with my third condition, the potential gain from limiting bubbles, because this is where my views have changed the most. Although I was concerned about the potential fallout of a collapse in the housing market, I think it's fair to say that these costs have turned out to be much greater than I and many other observers imagined. In particular, I and other observers underestimated the potential for house prices to decline substantially. The degree to which such a decline would create difficulties for homeowners, and most important, the vulnerability of the broader financial system to these events. In retrospect, I may have been unduly comforted by the resilience of the U.S. economy to the collapse of the high-tech bubble, to the earlier Russian debt default and failure of LTCM, and even to the commercial and residential real estate debacles of the late 80s and early 90s, as difficult as that recovery was. But mopping up after this asset price bubble has turned out to be much harder because of its magnitude, its greater magnitude, the centrality of residential housing and finance to our economy and financial system, surprising ways obscure and complex financial transactions have exposed banks and other financial institutions to heavy losses. In addition, financial and economic linkages across countries have made this crisis truly global in scope, affecting both developed and developing economies. And a result of all these factors, economic disruption here and abroad is likely to be considerably more severe than in past episodes. This severe fallout may indicate a larger potential gain than I had anticipated to leaning against excess exuberance in asset markets. 
However, realizing that potential rests on meeting my other two conditions as well, timely identification of the bubble and the ability of the central bank to materially influence the trajectory of the speculative component of asset prices. As for the first of these conditions, the events of the past few years, coupled with advances in our understanding of how bubbles form and persist, have made me a little less dubious that policymakers can reliably identify a serious bubble before it bursts. However, I am still skeptical about our ability to detect, bu to detect bubbles early enough to make a general policy of leaning against them successful on average. The identification of bubbles in real time is tricky because not all the fundamental factors driving asset prices are directly observable. Thus, any judgment by a central bank that an asset is overpriced is by its very nature uncertain. My views on this aspect of the identification problem have only been reinforced by experience during the inflation of the asset bubble, of the housing bubble. Over the first half of the decade, we saw a sustained rapid rise in both home values and mortgage debt. As this process continued, concern about it concern about its sustainability grew. Many observers started speculating that a bubble was indeed in place. During this period, staff throughout the Federal Reserve System examined whether house prices were overvalued and arrived at a wide range of answers. For example, one set of models that linked rental rates and house prices indicated as early as the start of 2004 that the market was significantly overvalued while another set of models suggested even as late as December 2005 that house prices could be justified by fundamentals. Thus, controversy over the existence of the bubble persisted almost right up to the actual peak in the housing market. Because the economic consequences of mistakenly responding to a misidentified bubble are substantial, Central bankers may be reluctant to take extra action in the face of such uncertainty, especially if they are risk-averse. Policymakers may also be reluctant to act because a bubble call might seem to require them to be more knowledgeable than market participants. After all, if at least some market participants perceive the emergence of a bubble, wouldn't they arbitrage the mispricing away? Recent research, however, suggests reasons for why market participants who think they know that a bubble exists may still not trade to eliminate it. For example, if some participants recognize the presence of a bubble but do not know the, how common the knowledge is, they might reasonably expect to make the most profits by riding the bubble for as long as possible with the goal of trying to sell the asset just before it collapses. Other research emphasizes that certain institutional structures, such as secured lending, delegated portfolio management, can create substantial costs in trading against an asset price bubble, so that even market participants who are conscious of a bubble will not find it profitable to trade against it. Together, these studies suggest that policymakers may be able to detect bubbles that will not be quickly arbitraged away, and thus they strengthen the argument for considering extra action. Nonetheless, even if policymakers are confident that a bubble has emerged, the question of the timeliness of the call remains. The essential problem is the timing of the detection of the bubble relative to the timing of its collapse. The risk is that the detection and subsequent policy response occurs not long before the bubble collapses on its own. Given the lags in associated with monetary policy, the resulting contractionary effects on the economy of the monetary tightening would occur just when the adverse effects of the bubble's collapse are being realized, worsening rather than mitigating the effects of the bubble's collapse. And the inevitable lags in detecting bubbles increases the likelihood that by the time action is taken, speculative activity will progress to the point that its collapse is not far off. Thus, even if we could have known for sure that a housing bubble existed, 
and that tighter monetary policy would have significantly checked the unwarranted rise in home prices, policymakers would have had to make this call early on, at least a year and probably more before the peak in real estate market in 2006, for such an action to have been beneficial. This brings me to the remaining condition, the requirement that monetary policy be able to materially check the expansion in asset bubbles. Clearly, interest rates play an important role in determining the fundamental value of corporate equity, houses, and other assets. However, um, as I noted in the earlier speech, the influence of interest rates on the speculative component of asset prices is unclear from both a theoretical and empirical perspective. My views on this issue have not changed much largely because of the still murky role that monetary policy played in promoting the surge in house prices and the accompanying run-up in both conventional and subprime mortgage debt. Although tighter monetary policy might have succeeded in shifting down the path of house prices, it is still not clear to what extent small or even moderate policy actions would have discouraged the broader speculative developments that characterize the current episode. Overly optimistic expectations of price appreciation, excessive leveraging, and a marked increase in risk-taking by homeowners and investors. Of course, a substantial tightening of policy, leading to a significant slowing in the economy and a rise in unemployment, might have had a marked effect on housing price gains. But undertaking such a policy course on a regular basis, that is substantial tightening, whenever asset price misalignments are detected would likely prove to be a relatively poor strategy on average, especially given the possibility of false positives and identifying misalignments and the existence of other potential remedies. In general, taking more targeted steps, for example, through regulatory changes intended to strengthen the financial system would seem to be, would seem a better course of action under such circumstances. To be sure, some observers contend that the low level of the federal funds rate, 2003-2004, was clearly a primary cause of the housing bubble, and a significantly tighter stance of policy would have been warranted. As you know, the FOMC, after having sharply lowered its policy rate during the 2001 recession, further lowered the funds rate in 2002 and 2003 in response to an outlook for tepid growth and a possible unwelcome disinflation. This accommodative stance helped set the stage for a more robust recovery, and as the expansion took hold in 2004, the FOMC began to tighten in a gradual manner that was publicly signaled in advance. How might these monetary policy actions have fueled speculation? Well, perhaps a low rate early in the decade by stimulating housing demand and pushing up the level of home prices incorrectly led households and lenders to extrapolate these price increases into the indefinite future. Overly optimistic expectations may have had an unusually stimulative effect on uh, the housing market after 2003 because borrowing constraints are being eased by financial innovations, such as the growth of subprime lending and other non-traditional mortgages. And that, and that growth was fueled in part by investor demands for the higher yields on complex structured products. In addition, the increased use of adjustable rate mortgages, which are more closely tied to short-term rates, may have initially boosted the stimulus from a lower federal funds rate. Now, these stories are certainly plausible, but I think on a closer examination, a number of questions are raised about monetary policy in the housing and credit bubbles. Although low short-term interest rates probably supported housing demand and home prices for a time, an effect that helped offset the negative effects on economic growth and employment of the steep decline in business investment, the role of monetary policy in fueling the speculation in real estate is still not clear. Studies that have tried to address how much monetary policy contributed to the increase in house prices during this period are inconclusive. And in general, the channel from interest rates to house prices 
has not been strongly established empirically, suggesting it might take a very large hike in the federal funds rate to have a substantial effect on real estate values. Moreover, if accommodative monetary policy engendered extrapolative expectations and speculation in 2003, why did it not restrain these factors after mid-2004 as the federal funds rate was increased? Tightening should have limited the extent to which households, especially those using variable rate mortgages, were able to borrow, thereby slowing the pace of house price appreciation. Furthermore, many of the worst subprime loans were made after the federal funds rate had normalized or was practically normalized, reflecting a wide array of deficiencies in the financial markets. The contrasting movement of short-term and long-term interest rates over this period further complicates any assessment of the link between monetary policy and the housing market. Housing demand, home prices are presumably most closely linked to the 30-year fixed mortgage rate and to the expected average borrowing rate to be paid over the life of an adjustable rate mortgage. That these actual and expected loan rates move sideways, even as the federal funds rate rose, suggests that factors besides monetary policy at work, especially since the FOMC clearly signaled that it would be returning the federal funds rate to a normal level over time, albeit at a, moderate, at a measured pace. A good portion of the appreciation in house prices probably owes to the structural changes that were taking place in mortgage financing, specifically the opening up of subprime lending, expansion and associated securitization markets with its strong demand for mortgages from investors. Gauging the effects of expanded subprime lending on house prices is complicated by two-way causality. More lending can drive up house prices, but expected house price increases can also induce more lending. Undoubtedly, causality did indeed run both directions in this episode. But studies indicate that an expansion in credit does lead to increased house prices and suggest that structural changes in mortgage finance likely boosted the rate of house price appreciation. Another key observation that must be reconciled with any explanation of recent events is that the run-up and subsequent decline in house prices has not been limited to the United States. Indeed, some countries have experienced even larger swings in house prices. In most countries during this period, long-term interest rates were low, despite the fact that their central banks did not ease as markedly as the Federal Reserve. A common factor behind these low rates, and perhaps in part behind the shared increase in house prices, as well as the global savings glut identified by Chairman Bernanke, the large amounts of savings, both official and private, from Asian and oil exporting nations that tended to lower neutral interest rates globally. In a broader sense, perhaps the underlying cause of the current crisis was complacency. With the onset of the great moderation back in the mid-1980s, households and firms in the United States and elsewhere have enjoyed a long period of reduced output volatility and low unstable inflation. These calm conditions may have led many private agents to become less prudent and to underestimate the risks associated with their actions. While we cannot be sure about the ultimate sources of the moderation, many observers believe better monetary policy here and abroad was one factor. If so, central banks may have accidentally contributed to the current crisis. But would a somewhat tighter stance of policy in recent years have reversed this complacency? To me, it's doubtful. Central banks would likely have needed to produce recessions of some consequence in order to force agents to reevaluate the cost of taking on risk. And that's an outcome unlikely to improve societal welfare. Rather than using the blunt tool of monetary policy to induce prudence, we should examine more closely the possibilities of using regulation and supervision to address concerns about over leveraging and risk taking behavior. 
In short, we still do not fully know what caused the run-up in house prices and overbuilding. Short-term rates were low in 2002 to 2004 as the Federal Reserve countered risks it saw to good economic performance, and these low rates probably had some effect on the housing markets at the time. But the problems largely built up after policy rates were well on their way to neutral, other factors appear to have played a major role. We have learned little about the likely effect that a somewhat higher federal funds rate would have had on the speculative element of prices. Of course, it is important to keep an open mind about the relationship of short-term interest rates and speculative activity. If it becomes clear that monetary policy can predictably influence the evolution of bubbles, Central banks should take that ability into account when crafting policies intended to keep output rising in line with its potential and inflation low and stable. In sum, I am not convinced that the events of the past few years and the current crisis demonstrate that central banks should switch to trying to check speculative activity through tighter monetary policy whenever they perceive a bubble forming. The recent experience may have made us a bit more confident about detecting bubbles, but has not resolved the problem of doing that in a timely manner. Nor has it shown that small to modest policy actions will reliably and materially damp speculation. And for these reasons, the case for extra action still remains questionable, despite our having learned that the aftermath of a bubble can be far more painful than we imagined, or at least than I imagined. Some may object to this assessment, arguing the current crisis is so bad that in retrospect, monetary policy should have been appreciably tighter to deflate or forestall housing boom earlier in the decade, even if that meant substantially weaker economy. And this argument, in my mind, has two defects. First, monetary policy is made in real time not with the benefit of hindsight, and any evaluation of competing strategies for the systematic conduct of policy must be grounded in that fact. Although we must learn from history, we cannot implement policy strategies that assume more information about the future than we can ever have. Second, even if we ignore the fact that policymakers at the time could not have known what the future held in store if funds rate had followed the path it actually did, if funds rate had not followed the path it actually did. We also need to recognize we cannot be sure what would have happened if policy had taken a different course, if policy had tightened appreciably at an early stage of the housing boom, say in mid-2003. It, it would have done so when the unemployment rate was still rising, and inflation seemed poised to move to an undesirably low level. Such a course of action might well have created its own unforeseen consequences that we might, we might now be ruining. This assessment aside, recent events would seem to have some implications for the conduct of monetary policy. For example, in light of the demonstrated importance to the real economy of speculative booms and busts, which can take years to play out, Central banks probably should always try to look out over a long horizon when evaluating the economic outlook and deliberating about the appropriate path of policy. The Federal Reserve staff has for some time regularly provided the OMC with this sort of extended horizon analysis. In particular, the staff regularly generates likely paths for the economy over the next five years or so under different economic and policy assumptions. And these scenarios often highlight uh, different possibilities for the evolution of prices for homes and other assets. Note that the focus here is not on a single baseline outlook. Rather, the emphasis is on exploring the various ways events could play out and the implications for policy. Another lesson of the current crisis is that central banks need to improve their understanding of the workings of the financial system, its vulnerabilities, its links to the real economy. We must try to find ways to discern more quickly if financial innovation and other factors 
are leading to a buildup of destabilizing forces such as rapidly rising asset prices or excessive leverage. Moreover, the unexpectedly rapid resonance of financial turmoil through global markets signals a need for further study of the complex cross-country linkages among lenders and borrowers and the ways in which these linkages are influenced by such factors as leverage, interdependent counterparty relationships, and backup liquidity agreements. Finally, more effort needs to be spent on further investigation of the financial accelerator and other credit channel effects, given the accumulating evidence that such effects can give rise to an adverse feedback loop between the financial markets and the real economy. Overcoming these deficiencies in our knowledge will not be easy, but the potential benefits would be great. Finally, as I emphasized at the outset, we must thoroughly review the regulatory structure, U.S. and global financial systems, with the objective of both identifying and implementing comprehensive changes needed to reduce the odds of future bubbles arising and improving the ability of banks and other financial institutions to weather the fallout from unexpected adverse changes in asset prices. Ultimately, this process should prove our best line of defense against the problems of the sort we're facing now. Thank you. Don has agreed to take a few questions, and I'm going to let him uh, stand here and recognize people. And uh, when he gets tired or bored, uh, we'll cut it off. Okay. Yes, go ahead. Oh, hi, Julian. Uh, from interest rates to quantitative easing, my question is, what are the legal and practical limits to the size of the Fed's balance sheet? So, I, I, so the, the first part of the question was that we had changed our monetary policy from interest rates to quantitative easing. So, and then what are the legal and practical uh, limits to that? So I think the, the um, first thing to say is I don't think we're, we've given up on one in favor of the other. I think we're doing both at the same time. Witness the percentage point decline in the federal funds rate uh, between the last two meetings, including one in intermeeting. So we are lowering interest rates, lowering our target rate. At the same time, we are engaging in a, a great amount of uh, liquidity provision to the system. The legal requirements are that that liquidity provision needs to be uh, needs to be uh, collateralized to the satisfaction of the Reserve Bank. So we can't just put liquidity in without adequate collateral behind it. It has to be uh, secured to the satisfaction of the Reserve Bank. So we need adequate liquidity. We can't lend against nothing. We have to have some protection. It's not our job to take uh, fiscal risk uh, for the taxpayers. In the circumstances, we've been in a couple circumstances when it looked like we might be on the verge, on the edge of taking fiscal risk. And in both cases, we work, that is uh, Bear Stearns and AIG, we worked very, very closely with the Treasury Department and got a, uh, a letter from the Secretary of the Treasury recognizing that we are taking risk and urging us to, to take those actions. So I think we are, we have worked on kind of the fuzzy border between monetary and fiscal policy uh, now that the uh, legislation is passed, I would hope we could stay on the liquidity side and let fiscal policy, the, the TARP money, if necessary, the fiscal authorities work on that side. So that's the, the basic legal framework is it's got to be secured lending. I think from a practical perspective, uh, the, is, the issue is there's no, there's no sort of arithmetic reason why we can't blow up both sides of our balance sheet uh, considerably, uh, and we're and we're doing it. Uh, I think the there are two two issues. One is can we do it and still achieve the federal funds rate target that the FOMC has set? 
In that regard, we got from Congress uh, permission to pay interest on reserves and interest on excess reserves. And our supposition was by paying interest on excess reserves, we would set a floor for the federal funds rate. We could adjust that floor to keep the federal funds rate at the target that the FOMC had uh, chosen. So far, that hasn't worked as uh, well as uh, I had hoped it would. Um, the federal funds rate has traded below the target despite the fact we've raised this floor. I think to some extent uh, that reflects people getting used to a new system, banks getting used to a new system in which they are earning interest on excess reserves and adapting their systems to that. And to some extent, I think it reflects the balance sheet constraints of the banking system right now. That is, in order to bring that federal funds rate up to the floor, you've got somebody's got to be willing to buy funds uh, from people who are selling it or would like to sell it below the floor and then put it to the Federal Reserve, and that means expanding your balance sheet. So I think the fact that the federal funds rate has been somewhat below uh, our target and somewhat below the rate we're actually paying on reserves <coughs> reflects some of the stresses in the financial system. But if that, uh, over time, I would think that would provide a floor and that we could, uh, then that wouldn't constrain our constrain our uh, use of quantitative easing. Brian. Uh, Don, about excess reserves and paying interest on them, not whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, but more about the timing. Is, is paying interest on reserves at this point in time when we're trying to get banks to lend a good idea or not? Well, I think, remember, the reserves that we're paying interest on, I, I don't... I don't have the sense that banks are lending to us and not lending to others because we're there instead. So I do think that if we weren't paying interest on reserves, that would just be excess reserves sitting around at an even lower interest rate. Perhaps the federal funds rate would be zero. Uh, the reason we've put those reserves out there is, in effect, a response to the fact that banks aren't lending to each other and they're not lending to the private sector, and we've had to interpose our balance sheet for where private balance sheets ordinarily would be. I think to the ex we've tried to design these facilities so that as banks and others become more willing to lend to each other, as the crisis dies down, the facilities will die down. So I, I don't think our I think these excess reserves are a consequence of the problems private parties perceive in lending to each other. They're not a cause. Uh, starting with the proclivity of the Maybe American... Maybe we ought to do one so others have a chance. All right, but uh, then I'll ask the, 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 uh, the most difficult. Try <laughs> <laughs> the easiest. Uh, from, from ground zero, it was obvious in August of 07 that the financial system was seizing up. Yep. Um, Federal Reserve balance sheet grew from August 07 to August 08 by 5%. CPI was 5.5%. Went back to my Friedman and Schwartz, looked at the episode between uh, uh, October 29 and uh, uh, January 1930, and I saw the same type of response. Uh, we knew then that if we hadn't had substantial relief by the third, first quarter of 08, we were going into a deep depression. And, first, and things looked like in January they were easing a little bit. Uh, balance sheet had increased a little bit and then <laughs> taken back. And we went over the first quarter turn and spreads widened and credit deteriorated. And we were, I, I actually warned them, watch out for August. Watch out for August 08. I was wrong by a month. And when uh, Lehman was allowed to go, this disaster happened, and the entire system froze. I mean, literally froze. Only two things you could trade were stocks and T-bills. And in our opinion, a year was wasted. From August to August, in trying to 
liquidize, liquidize the financial system. And that year has guaranteed the world is going to enter into a very severe recession or a depression. And when we look back in policy, and someone writes the sequel to this, this is going to be equivalent to what the Federal Reserve did in 1930. I think this is a, a question of sort of what did we know in August of '07, and how did we respond to the developing to the developments as they came by? I thought we responded quite vigorously. Myself, we lowered the federal funds rate in several steps, including between meeting moves. Uh, especially aggressively in January. So I think it's true that as we got to, I think uh, Jeff can help me here, in the October FOMC meeting, we made a move, things looked better, uh, but then the situation started to deteriorate. We eased again in December and eased very aggressively in January of, uh, in Jan January of 08 in terms of lowering our, lowering our interest rates when it became very clear the, uh, the amount of uh, dislocation in financial markets. And at the same time, we move very aggressively on the liquidity facilities. Um, I'm sorry? Uh, right, right. Well, it, we changed the composition. We've lowered the federal funds rate, and we changed the composition of our, of our balance sheet in ways that we thought would uh, would ameliorate the problems in the financial system. You're right that in retro, in, 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 well, and at the same time, inflation was rising, right? So uh, this was, this is through the spring and summer. Um, I was attacked by the Wall Street Journal for running too easy a monetary policy, right? The editorial page of the Wall Street Journal. So I, I think this was, uh, I thought we moved very aggressively uh, with the tools at our disposal. If we had let the monetary base grow even more rapidly, interest rates would have come down faster to lower, to lower levels. I'm not sure, given what we knew at the time, that was appropriate. Looking ahead, uh, you know, you mentioned the adverse feedback loop. I, I think it's becoming pretty clear that we're going into another loop, that is, that uh, with the freezing of credit markets that followed uh, the Lehman crisis, uh, you know, I don't know whose fault it was. It was probably just the messenger. Uh, it looks like uh, the U.S. economy, the global economy, the Chinese economy are slowing very rapidly enough probably to give us another uh, negative leg in the, in the credit markets and to bring on to the horizon the possibility of a global deflation. And my question to you is this. How, how does the experience of the Bank of Japan inform your thinking about how you might deal with uh, a rise of, uh, of deflation uh, that, has, that, that I think is definitely on the horizon? First of all, I agree that we have a very weak economy. The U.S. economy is declining right now. All the data suggests that, certainly the employment data. How long and broad that decline will be is anyone's is, is a forecast. I don't, uh, in terms of the risk of deflation, I think there is a risk out there, but it's still small in my mind. I think the, my, my most likely outcome is for a couple quarters of negative growth but and inflation coming down, but not getting to that deflationary state. But it's also the case that that risk, whatever, that, whatever I thought that risk was, four or five months ago, I think it's bigger now, even if it's still small. A lesson I take from the Japanese experience is not to let that get ahead of us, to be aggressive in, in, in moving against that risk if we see it, uh, if we, if we see it coming. So I, I don't, I don't, some, some people have argued that we should save our ammunition, that interest rate cuts aren't effective, et cetera. I think 
that where we see this, if were, were we to see this possibility, that we should be very aggressive with our monetary policy, as aggressive as we can be. And we have already, as the question before, Jillian's question suggested, engaged in forms of quantitative easing, and we should be looking carefully at um, the effects that they might have, what other forms of quantitative easing might happen as a contingency plan uh, should that still remote possibility, but I, I think uh, less remote than it was, uh, occur. Uh, Martin Hutchinson, The Bear's Lair. Uh, did you actually need to look at bubbles themselves when you were looking at whether you had a problem? Because could you not just have targeted money supply on the board basis, uh, whether your own M3, which you stopped reporting, or the St. Louis Fed, uh, Mr. Poole's MZM, you'd have seen that money supply has risen at an average of about 9% over 13 years since 1995, compared to growth in nominal GDP of just over 5 And surely if money supply is rising 70% faster than nominal GDP, you have to expect inflation somewhere. You didn't get it in price inflation because we had a, a secular event of the internet, <coughs> globalization, that suppressed price rises, just like the railroads did in the 1880s. But I, I can't see how you can allow broad money to grow so fast for so long and not expect disaster to occur. Well, broad money in the U.S. in the uh, 2000, years 2000 on wasn't growing that fast, at least the M2 money that we look at. So it didn't really have that suggestion. I think credit was growing very rapidly, and particular credit to households and particular mortgage credit. And that was one of the things we were looking at to see to to worry about what was going on in the housing market and consumer and consumer and consumer balance sheets. But I don't see an automatic, uh, there are so many ways of measuring money and technology and changes in banking practices are changing the nature of the stuff we call money, whether it's MZM or broad money, which are very, very different, very, very different things that I don't feel that there's a reliable relationship between money growth and inflation or inflation of assets um, uh, that, that the central banks can count on. I do think we look at money growth, not often, but occasionally. Bill used to bring it up in FOMC meetings from time to time, but less so over time, I think. Um, others uh, look at credit growth, and that's one of the indicators we look on what's going on in the financial system. But I don't I wouldn't take a nine-year average money growth and say something bad was inevitable because of that. I think you have to look below the surface on that. Yes. Um, I happen to be the, the treasurer of Orange County, so we know a little bit about uh, financial crises. But I'm interested in, uh, in uh, as a Wall Street person, there's a saying, uh, be careful when you give uh, Winchesters to Indians. Over the last number of years, there have been a tremendous uh, change or, or, I guess, lessening in the regulatory control, the advent of 12,000 hedge funds, the elimination of the uptick rule, you know, the, the um, price-by model. There were so many issues that clearly uh, were different from the regulatory experience that most of us dealt with, say, 10 years ago. Is there a lesson learned here, uh, and what should the new regulatory structure be I, I, the last question is way too hard. Uh, that's another speech. But I do think, I, I do want to talk to the lesson learned. Um, I think our regulatory system did not, and our, even our central bank system did not evolve along with the financial markets. So our, the Federal Reserve was set up to deal with liquidity crises in commercial banks. And I think the evolution of the financial markets and, and that was fine for 90 years, approximately. Uh, the evolution of the financial markets meant that the securities markets, these other un, uh, less regulated entities, were now much more important when we ended up having to provide liquidity to, uh, to forestall fire sales, to uh, try and uh, 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 build confidence and financial stability. We ended up extending that liquidity to a broader array of institutions than 
than just the commercial banks. So I and, and the regulatory system, I think, is the same way. It didn't really evolve in ways that picked up the, the growing importance of some institutions. Now, having said that, I do think that, for the most part, uh, the most severe problems here, think about the banks and investment banks, occurred in already regulated institutions. Hedge funds have been a problem more as an accelerator, perhaps, of events that were already occurring in terms of forced sales and whatnot. But if you think about this, the systemic weaknesses at the core of this problem, a lot of that happened in institutions that were supposed to be regulated. But I don't think the regulation itself evolved in a way that uh, took account of the changing structure of financial markets. A good example of that is the um, secured borrowing, the tri-party RP market. Uh, so the SEC's liquidity rules, with very good sense, said that you have to have enough liquidity to guard against loss of your unsecured borrowing, but you don't have to have plans for losing your secured borrowing. Well, one thing we learned in March of this year is secured borrowing is also vulnerable when that secured borrowing stretches to uh, more and more illiquid collateral. So I think we don't, we've learned a lot of lessons. Uh, I think the regulatory systems, as I said, needs to adapt to the new, to the, to the changing financial environment uh, for sure. One more question. Yes. Peter Bottaglia, Johns Hopkins Size. What do you see the link, if any, between the financial crisis as it erupted originally in the US and the global current account imbalances that preceded it? I think the link is indirect. Uh, so to the extent that the global imbalances is very indirect. The global imbalances were about some countries being in huge surplus and the U.S. being in a big deficit. I think that to the extent that U.S. housed that deficit we were spending more than we were producing. That's the current account deficit. The extent that that underlying that was a lot of household spending and very little household saving, I think to some extent that set the stage for the vulnerabilities in the financial system and in the household sector that, uh, that broke out in this, in this crisis. But it's also the case that a number of people were predicting three, four, five years ago that the crisis, they weren't predicting necessarily that the housing prices would fall and all. They were predicting something would happen with this uh, global imbalances, that the dollar would suddenly drop, that people would lose confidence in the U.S. economy, et cetera. And I think that sort of thing has not happened. The dollar did weaken. But I didn't sense that there was a loss of confidence in the U.S. economy that created, the, created this crisis. I think it was this underlying spending-saving imbalance and the borrowing that, and the risk-taking that, that went along with it. Thank you.